he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So when he, that is the Holy Spirit, when he has come, and of course he came on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So we're continuing our study of Christ's last night in the company of his disciples. The public ministry of the Lord is finished, and the response to it, as far as the eye could see, was poor. In fact, the prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled that the people, by and large, seemed hardened to it. And now, uh, from chapter 13 onwards, uh, Christ is on his own, uh, with his own disciples. And a large part of what he has to say in these chapters is about the Holy Spirit. And you'll remember the reason for that. It's because he had announced his own departure, which shocked them. They expected the Messiah to be here to stay. They were dependent upon him. They had come to love him. They could not conceive of life without him. And they were genuinely stunned when he told them that evening that he was leaving. And Christ himself used the expression orphans to describe how they felt. And he said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will return to you. But in the meantime, he is going to send another comforter. And so he spends some time describing this comforter, who he is, um, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and what he does. You'll remember, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, that the main work of the Spirit is really, very simply but profoundly, to indwell the believer. He comes into the home of our heart, and he establishes a link there between the Father and the Son, and us, so that we have a relationship with God. We know him, we speak to him, and he speaks to us through the scriptures. So he's here to indwell the believer, and that indwelling, by the way, never stops. It remains constant, and uh, he finishes his work in our hearts in heaven, and he perfects that fellowship completely between Father and Son and ourselves in the Spirit. So he indwells. That's the main reason he comes. But of course also, as we saw last week, he comes to equip us for life in this fallen world. And there were two parts to that. First of all, he enables us to walk with the Lord. He enables us to walk in harmony with his will and with his character so that just as he is in the light of holiness, so we too walk in the light as he is in the light. That's why we saw last Sabbath evening the importance of abiding in Christ, a living branch connected to the vine. Abide in me, and I in you, and so you will bring forth fruit. It's the Spirit that enables us to stay in Christ and Christ in us. The second way in which he equips us for life in this world is by enabling us to witness to the world. Now, this is important. He does equip us for doing that. And in fact, he uses our witness to the world, and notice how important this is. He uses our witness to the world in such a way that he blesses it to the salvation of other people. Um, what I mean by that is just this. You'll notice that in the, in the words that we're working with here, what you really have is a description of how the, how the Spirit works in the life of the world. You know, when, when the Spirit is coming into the heart of an unbeliever, he convicts and so on. But the Lord is relating that to the witness that the disciples bear, he says. I want you to notice that. He's saying, I will send my spirit, 
My spirit will make you witnesses, and you will testify of me. And when I send my spirit to you, the spirit will convict the world. Now you just have to step back and notice that. In other words, the work of the spirit in the hearts of the world is not divorced from your witness to the world. It is your life, your witness, the testimony of your mouth to the Lord Jesus Christ that the Lord uses in order to bring other sinners to himself. And that doesn't just speak to me as a preacher in declaring the truths of God. It speaks to you too. The Holy Spirit is in you to empower you and to enable you to speak the truth, the truth that the Spirit blesses to the hearts of those who hear you. Let that encourage you. Let that encourage you to pray and to ask God to bless your witness, to bless your words, that through them sinners may come to life. It's quite a thought when you think about it. So let's hear Luke at what the Holy Spirit now does in the hearts of unbelievers. What he does in the hearts of unbelievers. And here we have it in verse 8. It's put very succinctly. When he has come, well, you'll notice just at the end of verse 7, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, the key word here is the word convict. The idea behind the Greek word here is twofold. First of all, there's the idea of enlightening, shining a light on something. Second, there's the idea of persuading. So if you're convicted of something, first of all, you see it. Ah, I see it. And then you believe it. You believe that it's true. So to be convicted is just to see and to believe. Now, if you stop to think about it, that's how we still use the word conviction. Let's say, for example, in the legal world, we say that, well, such and such a person secured a conviction. What that means is that the lawyer brought the facts to light and persuaded the jury that the facts were true. So he brought light and persuasion. A convict, well, what's a convict? It's the same word as convict. A convict is someone about whom the facts have come to light and people have believed them and he's convicted. Even in very popular language, we say something like, all right, I'm convinced. What do you mean by that? It means that I've seen something and I'm persuaded by it. No, that's what the Holy Spirit does. That's it. He brings the facts to light and he persuades you of them. Now, um, how does he do it? Well, there's a way in which he does it for the Christian, of course, all the time. And I'm just mentioning this because it's not my, my main purpose, but it's worth mentioning. The Holy Spirit is an advocate. And one of the things he does for ourselves as Christians is that he, he sheds light on the promises of Christ. And um, he persuades us that they're true. We're able to be comforted by them. For example... Now, the Lord says something to you like, uh, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as a Christian, you sin. You're conscious of that sin. But the Holy Spirit sheds light on that promise. And he persuades you that that promise is true. And so you receive the comfort and the assurance of knowing that your sins are forgiven. Because, you see, he convicted you. He convicted you of that truth. And you thank God that he convicted you of that truth. As a Christian, he keeps convincing you of the truth of Scripture. Wonderful. 
But what the Lord draws their attention to is how he begins that work in the heart of an unbeliever. Now, you may be here tonight as a, as a non-Christian. And uh, I don't know if any of this process is going on in your heart. I hope it is. One of the reasons for explaining it is that you might recognize it. I hope and pray that you will recognize this in your heart as the work of the Holy Spirit. He convicts the world. Now, it's not so easy to convince the world as to convince the Christian. Why? Because the world doesn't want to know the truth that the Spirit is bringing to light. There's a fundamental resistance to what the Holy Spirit has to say. He's going to teach us certain things, but we don't want to know. We don't want to know about sin, we don't want to know about righteousness, and we don't want to know about judgment. But it's his task to illuminate these things. And really, that's the first distinctive thing to note. The three things that he illuminates. Maybe they're not the things that you expect. When he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Let's begin with sin. He needs to convince us of sin because we've got a wrong idea about sin. All of us. Wrong ideas. We, we don't see it properly. We're not persuaded about the reality of it. We need to see. We need to be persuaded. What's wrong with the way we view sin? Well, hundreds of things, maybe. Some of you here tonight, for all I know, might even deny its very existence. The only way you can really deny the existence of God is if, sorry, the existence of sin, uh, is if you're actually denying the existence of God. And although you're sitting here in church with the Lord's people, it's quite possible that you do deny the existence of God. Now, if you don't believe in God, you don't believe in sin. That should be obvious. They stand or fall together. So you may speak of things like crime, you may speak of problems, you may speak of disorders, but you don't speak of sin. Sin is a rather special word with a special meaning. If you don't believe in God, you don't need it anymore. Maybe that's why people just don't really use it. Lots of people don't. It's a three-letter word that's pretty much unmentionable. So maybe you deny its existence. The Holy Spirit has got to put that right. Maybe, too, uh, you accept its existence because you accept the existence of God. Maybe there's lots of things you're not sure about, but you believe there's a creator there, all right, and you believe that we are somehow accountable. So instead of denying the existence of sin, what you do is more subtle than that. And the devil encourages the process. He encourages you to redefine sin. So you set the agenda, not God. And sin for you, you've decided, is something really, really serious. Maybe something in the realm of child abuse or pedophilia. Maybe something like premeditated cold murder. Something like torture. These are sins. And you'll notice there are things that other people do. Not really yourself. Sins, oh, these are the really bad things that certain people in the world are guilty of. As for your own sins, well, you'll hardly call them sins, really. You call them words like, here we go, my failings, my shortcomings, my lapses, my indiscretions. There's a whole vocabulary of euphemisms that you use to describe your sins. Because as far as you're concerned, you see, they're not that bad. Now, come on and be honest about that. You may even say to me, oh, I acknowledge I'm a sinner, all right. But do you really? Are you really a sinner? Can you call yourself a sinner? Do you sin? Or have you just got failings and shortcomings and you commit indiscretions? 
And of course, because your sins aren't big sins, the big sins are what other people do, God is bound to let you off at the end of the day. And come on again and be honest with that. How many of you believe in God and actually believe that God's going to let you off because you don't think you're that bad after all? Oh, I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. But I'm not that bad. Is that what you think of yourself? God's too kind-hearted. God's too noble-hearted, too large-hearted. He's bound to let you off. He won't hold a grudge. Well, when the Spirit comes, he convicts the world of sin, first of all. He enlightens you about it and persuades you about the reality of it. And really, only the Holy Spirit can do that. The first thing he enlightens you about is the nature of it. In other words, you begin to let God define what sin is. Your catechism, those of you who are raised uh, Presbyterians, um, your catechism reminds you that sin is any want or any lack of conformity to God's law or any, any breach of the law of God, any failure to meet its demands, any direct breach of it, that is sin. Let God define sin. If sin's going to condemn you, if sin's going to send you to hell, then let God condemn it. Let God define it for you. Don't insist on defining it for yourself. And if the Holy Spirit is at all working in your own heart, he will convince you of this, that sin is what God says sin is. If God defines the breach of a Sabbath day as sin, it is a sin. If God defines theft of any kind as sin, it is sin. You might justify them both. But God says it's sin. In other words, sin acquires a new and objective definition. It's a quantifiable thing, you see. It's a definable thing. There's no point having an airy-fairy mystical view of it. It's a real thing. And every time you break God's law, you are a sinner. So that's the nature of it. Then the Holy Spirit convicts you of the extent of it and how real this becomes. Suddenly, instead of sins being what other people do and being big things that they do some of the time and being little things that you do just now and again, suddenly you begin to see it everywhere. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned in thy sight on the sill. My mother conceived me in guiltiness and in sin. It's in me, everywhere in me. It's just woven into the warp and woof of my being. There's not a particle of me that is without this sin. I see sins of commission more than I used to. And I see a new thing called sins of omission. Things that I could have done and didn't do, things that I should do now and am not doing, these things that were invisible to you before are now in front of your face because you see yourself as a sinner. Sin's in all your acts because it's in all your words and it's in all your thoughts. You live and move and have your being in it. It's as awful as that. That's what begins to happen when the Holy Spirit of God begins to convince you about the reality of sin. Sin is not... You could almost say that sin is no longer what you do. It's what you are. It's not simply I sin, but I am a sinner. And as well as the nature of sin and the extent of it, the Holy Spirit begins to convince you of the evil of it. The evil of it. Suddenly you realize, well, not necessarily suddenly, I shouldn't say that. Maybe gradually you realize the enormity of the things you've justified previously, the things you swept under a carpet, the things you excuse yourself for. Even a word, a curse, a blasphemy, you suddenly realize, or gradually realize, that for every idle word you must give an account thereof in the day of judgment. That blasphemy you uttered, that swear word, you must give an account thereof 
on the day of judgment, that thing you said to your husband or to your wife, you must give an account thereof on the day of judgment. Sin is to be measured in the light of the one we sin against. If I kill a dog, I'm guilty of killing a dog. If I kill a person, I'm guilty of killing a person. If I was to kill a king, I would be guilty of killing a king. But when I rebel against God and sin against his majesty, when I blaspheme the Almighty, when you take his name in vain, when you trample upon his day and his commandments and his ordinances, when you despise attending his house or reading the scriptures or prayer, how guilty, how guilty you are because you sin against God, the majesty of the Holy One who is of purer eye than to behold iniquity. He convinces you of the nature of sin, the extent of sin, and the evil of it. Sometimes, by the way, when God convicts you of sin, he actually convicts you of one in particular. Some of you who are Christians here will testify to that, that God actually zoomed in, the Holy Spirit zoomed in on one thing in your life, that just started to bother you and to bother you really badly till you could get no peace until you got peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ one sin to light you see it you see he illuminates it he brings the fact to light and he persuades you that you're guilty of it sometimes it can be a commandment that you've hardly noticed, that you broke. Isn't it interesting that we have a record in the Scripture of people who came to Christ who started to be convinced of covetousness? Now, in some ways, that's the hardest thing to find in yourself. It's the easiest thing, I think, to cover. But Paul tells us that what really started to bother him was that he was a covetous person. The law came, he says, saying, thou shalt not covet. And I saw myself covetous. So even though he was religious and diligent in lots of things, he began to see that he was covetous. And because he was covetous, he was what? An idolater. Deep down in his heart, he loved the things of the world more than the things of God. The rich young ruler, of course, was tested on this point. He kept lots of commandments. He wasn't really aware of sin at all. That was his problem, you see. That was his problem. We'll never really go for a cure unless we know our problem, will we? I mean, why are we going to go to a doctor when we think we're fine? But he, he wanted eternal life and he felt he didn't really have it. But he said to Jesus, what must I do to get it? And Jesus deliberately confronts him with the commandments. And he says, I've kept them all since I was a child. And he meant that, you see. And then the Lord just zoned in on the Tenth Commandment. Because he knew that was the man's problem, you see. Like God knows your problem. And I hope and pray that he's zoning in on your own heart and your problem. Sell what you have, he said, and give it to the poor. No, I can't do that. I can't do that. What happened to that young man? I have no idea. We'd all like to think he thought about it and turned around and forsook what he had for Christ, but we don't know. Zacchaeus had made himself fantastically rich because he was a tax collector who fiddled the system. But when the Holy Spirit came into his heart, he said to Jesus, I restore fourfold everything that I've taken falsely because the Holy Spirit convicted him of that sin. Theft. In a sense, kind of embezzling. Now, for you, it could be lying. It could be robbing someone, robbing an employee or an employer. It could be spending the Sabbath day on your own pleasure, doing your own things. It could be failing to raise your children for the Lord like you promised in baptism. It could be all of the above. It could be adultery, 
anything. But I want you to notice what the Lord zones in on particularly here. Read verses 8 and 9 together. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin. Then jump to verse 9. He will convict the world of sin because they do not believe in me. Um, what does that mean, really? What does the Lord mean when he says that? He's going to convict the world of sin because they don't believe in me. Well, I think we can take that two ways, and they're both valid. First of all, he'll convict the world of sin because they don't believe in me, therefore their sin remains. In other words, they have no defense for their sin. They reject the only provision made for sinners, that is me on the cross dying for them. And the Holy Spirit will convict them of the fact that because they are not Christians, they are lost and they are hell-bound. That's there. But I think this is there too. He will convict the world of sin because they don't believe in me. In other words, their failure to believe in me is a sin that the Spirit will convince them of. And that is true. The Spirit will convince you of the fact that unbelief is your greatest sin. How can that be true? Well, I just want you to think about it in this way. It's, it's one thing to sin, first of all, to break God's law, fair enough. You can break it in lots of ways, and some of them are really heinous, uh, full of guilt in the sight of God. But it's actually a lot worse when God comes to you and says, I know you've done this, but here... Here is my son. Here is a provision for you on the cross. Take it. It's my gift. And it is a costly gift. It cost my son his life. And he endured the pains of hell so that you could get deliverance from the guilt of what you've done wrong. And then you turn around and say, no. No, I, I don't need that, or I don't want it. Can you see how that's worse than the original sin? Of course it is. A, you're rejecting God's diagnosis of your actual problem, and B, you're rejecting God's cure that he purchased for you at great, great cost. There is no greater guilt on your hands than that tonight. No greater guilt. You may have done many terrible things, but your failure to accept the remedy is the worst of the lot. You ever thought about it like that? You may say, you probably have said, maybe you often say, well, what happens to people who have never heard about Jesus Christ? Well, that is a very simple answer, really. People who are lost, never having heard of Jesus, are not lost because they rejected Jesus. They never had an opportunity to believe in Jesus. If they are lost, they're lost for the law that they broke and for the sins that they committed. And because they never called upon God for a savior, had they done so, they would have got it. Uh, believe me, the good news would reach them. They're lost because they broke the law. The real problem lies with you because you've broken the law and you reject the Savior. You trample underfoot by your rejection the blood of the Son of God. You're saying, no thanks. I don't need it. I don't value it. Oh, what a sin that is. What a sin you're guilty of. Because they believe not in me. And really, you know, when the Spirit begins to shine, he doesn't just shine on the truth. I think he particularly shines on the cross. What does the cross mean to you? Luther had a phrase, crux probat omnia. The cross proves all things. The cross tests all things. The cross reveals all things. So indeed it does. 
When you are being convicted by the Spirit, you see, what happens is that you start looking at the cross. Look at it. Look at it. There you see how bad sin is. There you see how much you need to believe. Sin, it'll kill you. It'll kill you. It'll damn you. Unless you're delivered from it. Now, uh, back to where I started. If this truth is vital, and notice this is where Jesus begins. When the Holy Spirit comes, he doesn't make you happy. When the Holy Spirit comes, he doesn't give you a buzz. When the Holy Spirit comes, he'll illuminate sin. Now, if that's where Jesus begins, let us begin there too. I mean, there is no point, really, and sometimes the way the church behaves in general over this is just, I mean, if it wasn't tragic, it would be funny. But it's tragic. There is no point in communicating the name of Jesus to a people that we've not confronted. A people that don't know the reality of sin and their need of a savior. We must communicate that. We've got to find a way to do it. To tell people that they're not right with God. That they're in danger of hell and under God's condemnation. If we speak it, maybe the Spirit will bless it. Now, are you convinced of sin? Has God started to show you that you really are a sinner? We use the expression convicted of sin. Oh, I was convicted of sin or such and such a person is convicted of sin. And again, you see, you put it into a box of things I don't understand. Well, you'd better start understanding it. Are you seeing yourself as a sinner? Second, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of righteousness. Now, why does he need to do that? Because we've got a wrong view of righteousness too. And I suppose it stands to reason that if we've got a wrong view of sin, we've got a wrong view of righteousness. We need to be enlightened and persuaded. You see, our view of righteousness is, well, I suppose in a way it's being nice. Acts of kindness, acts of generosity. And when we add up all the acts of kindness and generosity that we perform, that's my righteousness. Makes me a righteous person. And sometimes if you think you're running a little bit short on these acts of kindness and generosity, you'll usually come up with one virtue that just covers up all your deficiencies. In the 21st century UK, that's pretty much tolerance. If you're tolerant of people covers every blemish in your life. Um, maybe it's that one that I've mentioned to you before from the pulpit. The man who told me as an old man on his hospital bed, and I almost wish he had told me anything else. I almost wish he had told me the blackest sin in the universe that he had committed. But no, what he said to me is that I've never hurt anybody. Is that all you've got in your hand going to God? A, do you think it's true? But B, is that it? Is that your best shot on the day of judgment? I never hurt anybody because you were righteous, you were good. And interestingly, you see God's righteousness the same way. You see, if I was to ask you, what does it mean that God is righteous? You would say, well, he's kind and he's gracious and he's merciful he's nice you're nice everybody's nice when the spirit comes that changes righteousness becomes completely different your righteousness you haven't got any and you suddenly begin to see that because you see god's law and you see your own sin he's shown you sin first sin first and now your lack of righteousness I haven't got it. The best I do is filthy rags. I mean, when it comes to being justified before God and getting some kind of entrance into heaven and being in the fellowship with God, nothing I do cuts it. Nothing you do cuts it. You're nowhere near it. The best of you. Nowhere near it. You've got no defense. And God's righteousness, 
well, you suddenly see it as not being Mr. Nice Guy, but being the Holy One of Israel. He is perfect, dwells in light unapproachable, whom no man can see or has seen. He is in a blaze of holy white light, inflexible in that holiness, perfect in that holiness. Not only does he not lie and cheat, but he doesn't tolerate lies and cheating. God's righteousness is a perfect thing. Now, um, that would be really bad news, except for what Christ goes on to say. He says he will convict the world of righteousness in verse 8, so then you just pass down to verse 10, and he elaborates, of righteousness, he says, because I go to my Father, and you see me no more. Now, this is, on the face of it, quite difficult to understand. What has my righteousness got to do with Jesus going to the Father and not seeing him again? What does God's righteousness, for that matter, have to do with Jesus going to the Father and me not seeing him again? What's the connection? Well, the connection is a precious one. When Jesus says he goes to the Father, remember, back to a few Sabbath nights ago, it means that he's going to the Father on a special route, via the cross, via the tomb, via resurrection, via ascension. And he is presenting himself as a sacrifice for sinners in the presence of the Father. And we see him no more because he is accepted by the Father as a righteous sacrifice and offering. And he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high because the Father was pleased with his righteousness. He accepted his life. He accepted the atoning value of his death. When Jesus said, it is finished, he finished it. He finished a perfect righteousness, which comes to be known in the Bible as God's righteousness. This is, uh, it's 500 years since Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg. When Martin Luther was converted, the text that really struck him was God's righteousness. And he came to see what he just hadn't noticed before in the Bible, that God's righteousness is not an expression about what God is like. It's a righteousness that he provides for sinners. It's not a quality that God has in his own heart. It's a gift that he gives to people, the righteousness of God. Where is that righteousness? Christ worked it out by his life and death. That perfect offering is yours if you believe in him. In other words, Jesus here is saying that the Holy Spirit will convince you that my righteousness is enough for you. You haven't got any yourself. You can never meet the demands of what God expects of you. But my righteousness does. And all you've got to do to get that righteousness on your side, or if you like to clothe yourself with it, is simply to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. It's yours. You say, well, that's too good to be true. Oh, it's good all right. And it's true. Wonderful. It is absolutely glorious that the whole of what Christ did is put on your account if you simply reach out and say, please give it to me. He'll convict the world of righteousness because I'm going to my Father and you don't see me again. An accepted, finished work, a righteousness. Proclaim that too. Yes, tell the world they're sinners, but tell them there's a righteousness from God. And it pleases me to tell you that. It's not easy to tell you you're a sinner and to show you some of your sins. But how good it is to tell you that there's a righteousness for you. And I pray that the Spirit is illuminating your mind in connection with that and persuading you that it's true. And not just persuading you that it's true, but even now persuading you to actually embrace it. Take it. Take it by faith. You know, it's sad that the many churches don't chase people's consciences anymore. 
You know, you can honestly, sadly, sit in many churches and the only thing that becomes uncomfortable is your bottom, to be quite honest. Because nothing will be said to ruffle your conscience or your peace. Why? In case you leave. Really, is that what the church of Christ has descended to? Sin and righteousness. The third and last thing that the Spirit will convince about is judgment. When he has come, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Again, we're in the wrong about judgment. How? Well, maybe in different ways. Maybe, again, we deny its existence. Maybe you think, well, I've got nothing to fear. I'm not accountable. I I don't really believe in God. You know, I believe that when it's all over, we're six feet under, end of story. I don't have to answer to anybody for what I've said or what I've done. Any answering I do is in this life, and it's over then. It's gone. Well, I suppose in a way that's comfortable. You've abused people, misused people, trampled upon people, perhaps, to get where you are, and there's no account to give. Well, fine. That's true. But does your conscience say it's true? Do you really believe that? Do you, do, you, do you really believe that this seething mass of sin and putrefying sores is just finished with that? You know, I don't honestly think you do. Because God has written something different on your heart. So you can deny the existence of judgment. You can also... Um, just like you do with sin, you can redefine it. You can say, well, I believe in judgment, all right, but you know, uh, I believe that my good and bad things are going to be weighed up. This is classic, isn't it? And I believe that my good things at the end of the day are actually going to tip the balance in my favor, especially because I was tolerant. Tennyson said in one of his famous poems, and it's it's a brilliant poem, uh, but he has the woman saying, uh, he'll only don the black cap for the worst of the worst. And I suppose you think so too, that it's only the worst of the worst. Hell may be real, but, well, it's for Hitler and Paul Pot, but that's just about it. And you also think that the judgment is a future event. Jesus corrects us on all these things. He will convict the world of judgment because, verse 11, the ruler of this world is judged. Now, that again is a strange thing. What does he mean by that? Well, one thing he means to tell us is, first of all, that D-Day has passed already. The decisive battle in the story of this world has already been fought. The crisis is not to come. Well, there is one to come, but the real crisis has passed. The real battle has been fought. It's now a mopping up operation. Jesus already judged the prince of this world. He has received his judgment. That should be a message to us that judgment is real, that God means what he says. It's also a message to us that if we are on Christ's side, the victory is ours. You don't need to worry. Don't fear the day of judgment. In itself, There is something in it that makes us hold it in awe. I'm conscious I'm running with this now. I've mismanaged my time. But just let me say a couple of other things. um, If we are Christians, we, we needn't fear it like that anymore. We needn't. The terror is out of it. The prince of this world is judged. And those who are on the Lord's side are victorious with himself. Am I afraid of the day of judgment? In some respects, yes, in the sense that I am in awe of it. But am I genuinely afraid of it? No. Why? Because I know him in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have entrusted to him until that day. That's why. That's why. Again, the fact that the prince of this world is judged reminds you that if you are on his side, you too are under judgment already. You can well think of the judgment in a sense as a future event because in some respects it is, but in some respects it's past. You are, well, 
it sounds like an insult, but you know, like the like the children say, they hold up the sin, they say, you're a loser, you're on the losing side. We're on the losing side. If we are on the devil's side, we're judged. It's not as though it's in the balance and who knows how it'll turn out. Man, if I am on the side of the prince of darkness, I'm finished. As Jesus said, the wrath of God abides on him already. Have you ever thought that the wrath of God is abiding upon you already because you're on the wrong side? In other words, it's not something that will be released simply as a torrent, but it's something you're already abiding under. Your conscience may be telling you that too, that you are under the wrath of God. Now, let me close with this. Sometimes we say, well, have you seen the light? And maybe that confuses you because you think Christians see lights. They don't see lights, right? I've never seen a light in my life. I don't expect to see one. But when we say, have you seen the light? I suppose that's a way of saying, do you see the truth? Are you persuaded of the truth? Do you see the value of the cross of Jesus Christ? Or maybe the cross has been a mystery for a long time, but are you getting a handle on it? I described it a few weeks back as a portal between you and heaven. It's a gateway of access into a genuine other universe. Not a speculative one, but a genuine other universe. It's at the cross that you see all these things plainly. You see the nature of sin. You see the extent of it. You see the evil of it. It crucifies the Son of God. You see righteousness there, what Christ is doing, what Christ's accomplishing. You see judgment there. You see it all there, you see. It's no wonder that when you're convinced of all these things, you're convinced of the truth of the cross. If you are, all you need to do is believe and follow Jesus. Believe. Say, I am persuaded, O Lord. I believe and I will follow. Don't think about it. Do it. Let us pray. Lord, help us to say with David that I did not stay nor linger long as those that slothful are, but hastily thy laws to keep myself I did prepare. We bless you for the one who shows us truths that we cannot see, who persuades us of things that we don't want by nature to accept, and the one who invites and encourages us to follow a Lord and Master who will love us, who will love us forever, and will never let us down. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's um, bring your worship to a close by singing God's word in Psalm 89 on page 345. Psalm 89 and verse 13. And we're singing to the tune Tiverton. Thou hast an arm that's full of power. Thy hand is great in might. And thy right hand exceedingly exalted is in height. Again, like we sang this morning, this is God doing something. Something to do with salvation. Justice and judgment of thy throne are made the dwelling place. So the whole throne of God rests on that foundation of justice and judgment. Now that sounds tough and inflexible, but look what's coming. Mercy, accompanied with truth, shall go before thy face. So God is coming towards us with gospel mercy. The result, greatly blessed the people are. The joyful sound that know, that's the sound of the gospel, of God's mercy. And in brightness of thy face, O Lord, they ever on shall go. They in thy name shall all the day rejoice exceedingly. That's how we should be as Christians. That's, that's our entitlement. That's our inheritance. And in thy righteousness 
shall they exalted be on high. What a great thing to have on your side, the righteousness of Christ. Four stanzas we stand to sing from verse 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.